for singing with us. I love that song that Greg brought to us. And I, I just, before we dive into the message, I just want to let that sit for just a second. Do you believe that he is here? As we celebrate Christmas, right, we're diving into this idea of Emmanuel, this God with us, this God who is not out there somewhere, who's not looking at us from afar and judging us and pointing his finger down at us, but we serve a risen Lord, we serve an Emmanuel, we serve a God who is here. He's in this moment, not just when we gather together to worship, but he's here in our midst and in our hearts and in our lives. And I shared just kind of a thought that I've been pondering or that I've been noticing since I moved here, right? So we have a house now, we have Christmas decorations up all over the place. And my heart is struck by the number of houses with Christmas lights where cars are parked in the driveway on Sunday morning. And it's not like a judgment statement. I'm not trying to put that on anybody. Maybe they go to church at night. Maybe they're tuned in online as we speak. Hey, sorry, I didn't mean to point you out. But my point is simply that we have so many many people, we have a society that believes that, yeah, there's a God out there somewhere, and I believe in that. But we as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, as participants in this way that Jesus sets out, celebrate that God is here. That God came near, that Emmanuel draws close to us. And that is a key distinction. And so as we sing that song and as we worship to it, I hope that that becomes clear. I hope it becomes something that we carry it with us. I know that I've been carrying it with me as we go into this Christmas season. That helps me, I'll make a good transition here, see the awe in the season, right? We've been talking about awe for at least last week and we're diving into it. But as we look at Christmas, we're trying to dial into this lens of awe. What does it mean to be in awe of Christ, in awe of Christmas? How do we regain so that we're not just reliving the same story in another year, looking at the same scriptures, rehearsing the things that we've heard since we were children. But how do we inject some wonder into it? Remember, we gave that definition last week that awe is reverential respect mixed with fear and wonder. And when there's no fear, then it's just curiosity and that doesn't drive us to do anything. But without the wonder, without there being something new and worth drawing us into, then it just becomes reverential respect which can be dead. And as we enter into this season, the challenge for us as light carriers, as Christ followers, is to not just let this be another season, another year, to not just let this be the time when Christmas happens out there, but to let Christmas happen for us as well. Because I don't know if you're like me or most people, right? But we tend to romanticize Christmas, right? The lights and the cards and the songs that we get to sing and candlelight services and all those wonderful pieces that make Christmas Christmas, at least in our minds and in our history. But as we dive into the story a little bit, even as we dive into our songs, you have to kind of wonder whether or not we've maybe made this story about something more than it really is. Let me just give you a a for instance. Uh, How many of you know the song Away in a Manger? Away in a manger, right? No crib for a bed. It says the cattle were lowing. You you all know what lowing is? Let me demonstrate. No, I'm not going to demonstrate. But I used to live, I used to live like in farm country, and I don't know cattle, like I've never heard a bunch of cattle just lowing. Maybe at feeding time, but the baby's born, all of a sudden it sounds like the cows are just out in the field purring. Like, I don't know what we're trying to communicate, right? And no crying he makes. How many of you have children and believe that story, right? None of your hands are up. There's no possibility, even being the son of God, coming down into this earth that no crying he makes. We romanticize this idea of Christmas. We put it in our cards, we put it in our carols, and Christmas has become this thing that kind of 
it's a performance, right? It has to be perfect. There's no better place to see that, right, than when it is an actual performance. Your kids go up to the Christmas program, right? They're singing the songs, and you're always looking for your kid, and you're hoping, and you're praying that your kid is not the one kid who's going to ruin Christmas. You know who I'm talking about, right? All the kids are up there, and there's one kid who's just doing this, right? He's picking his nose, and he's wiping it on his name, and you're like, you are single-handedly ruining Christmas right now. Please stop. We build up this idea that Christmas has to be perfect. And then we sing our songs and we read our scriptures and we review the same story and we put it through this lens of the fact that Christmas needs to be perfect. We need Christmas to be perfect. We like peace on earth and goodwill to men. We like the baby in the manger not to cry. We like this picture of Christmas that exists out there somewhere. But as we go through this holiday, this Christmas season, our challenge is to step into the story, not to see the picture from afar, but to actually view it in context and where we go. So there's another side to this story. Last week we looked at the shepherds, and today we're going to look at perhaps the other side, that for some of us Christmas is full of awe as Christ followers, but there are other people in this story and in our lives to whom Christmas is simply awful, right? Not awful, but just awful. Christmas just doesn't make sense to them. They don't get it. They can't get past the story. And if we look critically at the Christmas story, we can see that there are elements of this. Because again, we love the stable. We love the baby in the manger. We love Emmanuel, God, with us. But when we really look at the story, what's it about? It's about a teenage girl who winds up pregnant. She claims that the baby is God's, and so her husband has in mind to divorce her quietly. You remember the story which would have certainly meant ridicule for her. It would have meant being an outcast for her and for her son. It might have even meant death at this time in history. Such was the weight that they placed on this idea of being not married and having a child. And that taints the picture that we have of this perfect Christmas. Add to that story that they have to cross a desert. You remember the Romans passed a census. They were going to raise taxes and crush the working poor. They were going to raise unemployment and inflation. There was going to be too much money going to the government and away from people. And I'm just reading the headlines right now. Catch it? In Christmas, these two pictures collide, right? That there is an awe piece of Christmas. This God with us, the baby lying in a manger, wrapped perfectly, no crying he makes. And then there is reality. There's the awful truth of what happened in the experience of Christmas. And that brings us to our story today, that this picture-perfect Christmas collides with a harsh reality. So we're going to open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. If you brought them, I'd encourage you to turn there. If you want to pull out your smartphone, open the Bible at Matthew chapter 2. Of course, if you didn't bring a Bible, you'd like to follow along, just slip your hand up. Our ushers would love to bring you a Bible. We'll be on page 455. But we're going to walk through just this early passage in Matthew chapter 2 and hopefully connect some dots, uh, some unseen dots in this Christmas story. So let's read that now. Matthew chapter 2, starting at verse 1. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem, asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. Herod was deeply disturbed. We're going to look at this story through the lens of Herod, because to Herod, Christmas was not full of awe. Christmas was just awful. 
Right? We're reading this story. It doesn't quite line up with the Christmas narrative. This part isn't in the picture. It doesn't fit the joy of the season. Today's story is the story of sadness, the subplot of what's happening behind the scenes of Jesus' birth. So in Matthew chapter 2, let me just give us some background. Right, It says that there were magi, wise men, educated. These were scholars. Specifically, we think we infer that they were astronomers, studiers of the stars, that they followed through with the stars, with astronomy, and the prophecies of the Old Testament. They kind of bridged this gap between maybe Jewish tradition and the traditional study of Scripture, along with what was cutting-edge science then, the mapping of the stars. See, because in the ancient world, they viewed these two things as one. When something happened in the heavens, something happened also to us. So they see the star in the sky, they pack up their luggage, and they take a road trip, and they introduce us to these two types of extremes that we're going to talk about today. Jesus comes into the world, and he divides the characters in our story into two real categories, the magi who come to bow down and worship, and Herod who is deeply disturbed. Those who come seeking awe at the foot of a king and those for whom seek to make Christmas awful for them or to participate in the experience that they themselves have. Jesus comes for this purpose, to draw a line in the sand between those whom seek him out and those who seek to be disturbed by him or those whom he Disturbs. That's the story of Herod. This is a much different lens to look at awe through. Some background on Herod. Herod was assigned king by the Romans. If you remember the story, right, Jerusalem and the Israelite people aren't ruled by themselves at this point. They've been taken over by an oppressive Roman system. And so they appoint Herod as king over the region. And Herod, by all rights and purposes, was a good king in the sense that politically he extended the territory. Although he did it through terror and threats, Herod is considered the great builder because he built up so many things across the region. From from the Romans' perspective, Herod was a good king. He even built the temple for the Jews. He was half Jew himself. He wasn't a full Jewish person, but he builds the uh, Herod's temple. You may recognize this from antiquity. And this sets the stage for verse 1. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, during the time of King Herod, during this great builder who expanded the territory and kingdom through fear and terror, magi come from the east to Jerusalem. Now, there's no map quest. There's no directions. They're following literally a star in the sky, which makes way for the first and most perfect Christmas miracle that you have a group of men who ask for directions. This is what makes them wise men, right? This is why they're held up in such high esteem, because they're following a star. And I actually map quest this, so uh, a little bit of map here. It takes you two hours to walk from Bethlehem to Jerusalem, just in case you're interested. But Bethlehem is about five miles south of Jerusalem. It's called Bethlehem in Judea to emphasize that it was in the tribal nation of Judah, right? This is where David was from, where the Davidic line was said to come through. In other words, this newborn king, is a direct threat to Herod's throne. Because while Herod was put up by the Romans, while he was half Jewish, he was only there as a political servant of an oppressive regime. And Jesus comes as a naturalized citizen born in the place where the Messiah was to come. Let's keep digging in here. Verse 2. The Magi are speaking to King Herod and they say, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and we have come to worship him. 
Now, N.T. Wright is a famous scholar, and he draws this picture, this correlation that countries in the East had developed a very advanced system of prophecy and of sky-telling and fortune-telling through the mapping of stars, through the mapping of planets that they didn't quite know what they were at the time. And many astronomers today, because we can rewind the night sky, say that what they observed was something that's very, very rare and would have spoken directly to their preconceived notions. See, they think that one of the stars was Jupiter and the other star was Saturn and they conjoined together in a specific constellation that pointed the way for these astronomers of the east to see a sign that made them pack up and leave home and walk to Jerusalem. Jupiter is known as the kingly planet because it's named for the king of the Greco-Roman gods and Saturn represented the Jewish people. And so when these two stars came together, you can actually rewind the night sky and they circle around a place as they retrograde motion throughout the heavens. It's fascinating to look at with our 21st century eyes and to see what perhaps these wise men experienced, what they knew was to come. And so the conclusion to the astronomers was obvious. There's a new king of the Jews about to be born, and so they head to Jerusalem. Now, the truth is that you know most of this. If you've been in church, if you've heard the story ever, if you've grown up going to church or even read the story yourself, this isn't news for you. You've seen the dramas, you've seen the stories, you've sang all the songs. And so rather than looking at the big pieces of the story, we're going to dive deeper into Herod's story to look at the subplot, what's going on behind Jesus' birth so that we don't miss the significance of this event. It says that the wise men, the magi, went to Jerusalem. This was the kingly city. This is where they would expect the king of the Jews to be born. It made sense that they would go there. But the key word that they use is the one who had been born. Remember, Herod was not born king of the Jews. He was placed over as the ruler by Roman appointment. And so don't miss this. As Matthew is penning the words to this gospel, he's making a direct accusation against the king of Herod. He says, Herod is an imposter king, and the magi come to this stand-in king, and they say, hey, do you know where the real king is? Now, if you were Herod, how would that sound to you? Hey, since you're the false king, do you happen to know where the real king is going to be born? Not going to go over real well, which leads us to Matthew chapter 2, verse 3, right? When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. The translation isn't the greatest there. Disturbed is a pretty weak word. He freaked out. He went ballistic. He got scared. He started rising up with threats and accusations. He responded out of a tremendous amount of fear for protecting himself. But the key word here that maybe you've never recognized, I certainly didn't until I was preparing this, is all of Jerusalem with him. So King Herod's freaked out, right? Hey, you're the fake king. Where's the real king? Why is all of Jerusalem who is anticipating this Messiah, why is all of Jerusalem disturbed. To understand that, we need to know a little bit more about this King Herod. Uh, Herod, like many people of power in this day and age, did not do confrontation well, to put it lightly. He suffered from severe paranoia, so much so that he executed multiple members of his family because he was scared that they would steal his power. We have on record that he executed his brother-in-law, his mother-in-law, his uncle, and three of his 14 children. He was a maniac. He even executed his favorite wife, Miriam, because he thought she was cheating. 
And he loved her so much, but he still killed her anyway, and he never quite recovered from that loss. Now, this is just the family that he had executed. This is just the family that he killed in order to protect his throne. And this was well known throughout the empire, not only within his family, but within the land in which he ruled. Remember, we said he ruled with terror and with threats. As a matter of fact, the Roman emperor Augustus is quoted as saying this about King Herod. It would be preferable to be Herod's pig rather than his son. In other words, you stood a better chance at surviving if you were his bacon than if you were in his family. This is the kind of king, this is the kind of environment in which Jesus is born into. Herod had obvious control issues. He was incredibly vain, he was narcissistic, he was crazy. So when the magi show up and they ask this mad king, hey, where is the real king? It didn't go over well. The historian Josephus is a, is a secular kind of historian who writes about this time in history. And he says, about the time that the Magi show up, Herod was dying. His body was racked with convulsions. His skin was covered in sores. He was rapidly losing his mind, but he was still clinging to power. He was still unwilling to move on. He was still trying to establish his rule and his reign. And he was even more terrible because of that. Now do you see the reality in Matthew chapter 2, verse 3, is that when Herod was disturbed, all of Jerusalem was disturbed with him because it was only a matter of time before heads started rolling, right? When Herod is upset, it's a bad day for everyone. And so the wise men show up, and they're pretty naive and new to town, and we say, hey, I hear there's a new king, and everyone goes, shut up, Herod will hear you. This is bad. Don't say this out loud. See, Herod was threatened by Jesus. And now that he knows about Jesus, Herod has a problem and he has to begin ways to find it. See, Herod wasn't done running his own life. He wasn't ready to be ruled or superimposed or to have anybody come up alongside him and come against all that he'd worked so hard to protect and procure. See, for some Christmas is awful. They come to seek and worship the king. The magi seek out from the east to bow down and to worship this new king of the Jews. But for some, Christmas is just awful because Jesus represents an affront to their way of life. It represents somebody who wants influence and control over the way in which we live. In other words, if Christ is a king, it makes a difference. The illustration that we can pull from Herod's life is simply this, that Jesus is either your peace Or he is your problem. He's either your peace, he's either that thing that you seek and go out on a journey for and you seek to bring awe and wonder and earthly treasure to, or he's the one who's coming against your kingdom, who's trying to break down maybe some of the things that you built up. Those of us who still desire to ruin our own life, to be king of our own destiny, Christ coming is a big problem. And that's where we find Herod. So now that you have a little background, a little history on who Herod is, what he's capable of, what he's done in the past and the state of mind and life that he's in, how do you think Herod responded to the question, where's the real king? What would you do if you were him? If you were guarding your kingdom, if you were protecting your control, your power, your influence, you would start a plot to get rid of of the problem. Matthew chapter 2 verse 4. When he, Herod, had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler." 
who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly, and he found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem, and he said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, listen, so that I too may go and worship him. Right? How many of you believe Herod? Now, the wise men were wise men because they saw it, but they weren't idiots. And so they know who Herod is. They know his reputation. And Herod says, hey, I want to come and worship this king too. Obviously, he's the king of the Jews. So you go and find him and let me know, and then I'll come worship as well. And so God warns the wise men in a vision. He says, hey, don't go back to Herod. Instead, return home via a different path. When Herod finds out, he is, of course, not happy as anybody who is a control freak or power hungry is. He gets mad. Verse 16, Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. Don't miss the play on words. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. Herod finds out and he goes nuts. He hired men sent to Bethlehem to kill every male child two years old and under based on when the star appeared, based on when the magi left. This is hard to imagine because I don't know how you picture this, but I picture an entire city's worth of young boys. Reality is that Bethlehem was a small village outside of Jerusalem. It was probably about 20 children who numbered in that under two years of age range. Knowing what you now know about Herod, it is entirely conceivable that he would give such an order. In lines of who he's killed within his own family, in line of the entire people that he's eradicated up until this point, his edict to wipe out children is not surprising. Which, let me just stop there for a moment, because Christmas can be awful for some of us. Because of losses, because of the reality of Christmas without family who was here just a year ago. I have a couple of friends who are going through some traumatic losses. I have some close friends who lost a child around Christmas. And for them, Christmas is awful, but it is also hard and difficult. Can you imagine when Jesus is now 30 years old and ministering, going back to seeing these people with the reality that he's the reason that my son was taken from me. He's the reason that my son was killed. For some, Christmas is an awful time. It's a hard time. They don't see the awe of this God with us. They just see the pain of what was left in the last season, what's been lost and taken away. And that's a legitimate feeling to feel as we go through this season. So how does this whole story relate to me? That's great, right? We've got a lot of information on Herod, a lot of information about the times and the culture, things you didn't know before, but how does that apply to us today? What are the things that we can maybe take out for this? What do we have in common with Herod? I think if we're brutally honest with ourselves, if we sat down and looked in the mirror, there might be more in common than we would care to admit. How often do we want to call the shots in our own lives? How often do we want things to go our own way to determine the destiny and direction of our lives? How often do you clamor with Christ for who's sitting on the throne of your life? If we're honest, I think we all want to be kings in our own life. And the truth is that we all have a hint of Herod in our hearts. 
Many of us are the center of our universe, and if we look at this child, this Christ, as competition, as a threat to our way of being, as a stop to anything that's normal or having the life that I want, if, that, if Christ is king of your life, then that means that I'm not. If he's the king of kings, then what he says goes. It means that everything about our lives, everything about who we are, must change in light of this child who was born. The result is that many of us go to great lengths to get rid of him. We don't get into his word. We don't pray regularly. Maybe we go to church on Sunday, but we don't get any more involved. We keep God at arm's length and say, you're good in the manger. You're good in that picture-perfect reality. You're good to see from afar. Just don't come closer. Some even go further than that. They avoid church. They laugh at his followers. They deny his claims. They roll their eyes at what followers believe. They're so afraid that he will steal the throne of their hearts that we do everything in our power to remove his influence from our lives. Let's really bring this home now. I think this is why we romanticize Christmas. Because if we can just tell the story, if we can just paint this picture-perfect image of a baby in a manger, and if Jesus just gets to stay there and we can celebrate all that is good and beautiful and wonderful about Christmas, then we don't have to deal with the fact that Jesus doesn't stay in the manger, but he grows up and he becomes a leader and he becomes someone who says, if anyone would be my follower, he must deny himself and take up his cross. We would like the Jesus in the manger, but the Jesus at the cross seems to be someone completely different. And so to avoid that harsh reality, to avoid the reality of this God who came to be king of our lives, we simply picture the manger, that baby Jesus, and we say he can stay there. And humanity is really divided along this line, the line that Herod and the Magi present to us. Those who hang on tightly to their throne, to their power, to their influence, and those who come and seek out this king and lay everything down in worship. The contrast is incredible, right? Herod holds tightly to his earthly treasures, willing to do anything and everything at any cost to keep Jesus out. The wise men, by contrast, give up everything. They lay down earthly treasures because they have no value to them any longer in view of this Christ who came as king. Herod vehemently denying his need for a savior. I don't need anyone's help versus the wise men who seek it out and who openly declare their need for Jesus. Notice that Herod's problem was not a lack of faith. Herod believed. He believed enough to do something about it, enough to feel threatened. He believed that it could be true, and he was threatened by the implications. So many of us walk the same road, whether it's you or the people you work with or the neighbors whose houses are decorated in Christmas lights but not celebrating Christ. Almost everybody celebrates Christmas, but very few celebrate Christ. We go through the holidays looking for awe while ignoring the truth right in front of us, that for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called a wonderful counselor, the mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace. 
So many celebrate Christmas while at the same time rejecting, denying, pushing the influence of Christ out. It's not that they don't believe. They do believe. They believe enough to wrestle with the implications that if Christ is really king, then it changes everything. Christ comes humbly as a baby lying in a manger. And that's often how he enters our lives, humbly. He doesn't force himself to do what he commands us to do. He comes in quietly and gently and exposes us to the reality of what it means that he's king, not only of the universe, but king of our hearts and of our lives. Herod is afraid of competition, and so many of us are the same way. And honestly, rightfully so. Because if Christ is who he claims to be, then it changes everything about the way that we live, not only at Christmas, but every single day of the year. Following Christ changes our perspective to see who Christ really is, not only at Christmas time, but in all of the actions that we take. So Christmas is either an awful time of year, where you have to struggle with this boy king, with this child who came down to rule and to reign in our hearts and in our lives, or it's an awe-filled time of year where you're reminded of your need for a Savior, your need for grace, and the way in which God came. Is Christ competition for you? Is Christ your problem, or is he your peace? Which is he for you? I just want you to wrestle with a couple of questions. We're going to close with one more song. And, and I just wonder, as you look at this story, as you peer into the pieces that we've talked about today, if we talk about the fact that we're divided among these lines between the Magi and between Herod, I just wonder if you took a moment to be brutally honest in the quietness of this room and in the stillness of a song to just ponder, am I more like Herod? which none of us would ever willingly admit, or am I more like the Magi? When Christ comes in, do I set everything aside? Do I set out on a journey that takes two years to arrive at, bearing all the earthly treasure that I have, and do I set it willingly at the Savior's feet? Am I seeking Jesus out? Or does Jesus represent a competition? Is Jesus something to keep at arm's length? Is Jesus something to be contained and controlled and manipulated and put just so? Are you more like the Magi, the wise men, or are you more like Herod? Maybe as we go throughout Christmas as we've been talking, maybe the Holy Spirit's been speaking to you about the role of awe and the role of Jesus in your life. And maybe you just need to have an honest and open conversation and to say, Jesus, I would rather you stay in the manger than I would you invade my heart, my life, my work, my family, my commute, my house, my bills, my finances, all that stuff. Jesus, I would rather you stay contained and little and in the manger where you're not a threat. But the reality is that Christ goes from the manger to the cross. And he invites all of us on that journey alongside of him. Which is either a really big problem for you, or it's the most peaceful, blissful, awe-inspiring thought that you can participate in this Christmas. So I'm going to invite you to bow your heads to take a moment of silent introspection, to not be distracted by the person next to you or by your notes, but just to openly and honestly ask God, God, where am I like Herod? 
Lord, we'd never find ourselves committing the atrocities that Herod did. We're not murderers, for goodness sakes. But if I'm honest, I would rather be in control than you. I would rather be the one in control of my destiny. I would rather be the one calling the shots. I would like to pick and choose which version of you I can follow. I would like to pick and choose which scriptures apply to me and which are just old and contextually outdated and that I can reason my way out of. Jesus, I would rather you stay in that picture-perfect frame lying in swaddling clothes in a manger than I would you come face to face and declare to me that any who would follow me must deny themselves, that any who would follow me must eat my flesh and drink my blood, that anyone who would come after me must deny even father and mother. Jesus, this is a hard word, and I pray that you would give us the tenacity and boldness of spirit to own it to own the places where we're insufficient, where we're deficient, God, where we need a Savior, that we would move from being tiny little Herods in control and grasping for power and clinging to our thrones, God, and that we would instead step up off the throne, walk over to you, and to bend the knee, to worship you for who you are, for you being God with us, God, and to boldly declare that we've given everything to follow after you. That we would move from Christmas being an awful time that invades our world to instead being filled with awe and inspired by who you are, by your word, by your testimony, by the life that you call us to live. Because if you really are king, if you really are God, if you really are Emmanuel, it changes everything for us. God, I pray that you would allow us to experience the awe of this season new and fresh and that that awe would transform us. That we would be about your business and about the things that you call us to and that we would carry your name, this story of a God who is not out there somewhere, but a God who is here, who is proximate, and who is close. God, that we would choose to seek you out, not choose to push you out and away from us. Heavenly Father, help us carry this message with us this week. Through the power of your Holy Spirit and the name of Jesus Christ that is above all other names, in the name of the Father. All God's kids said,